Well, most of us in the room today, I think, grew up with a comic strip called Peanuts. Remember Peanuts? Peanuts was created by who? Charles Schultz, right? And it ran in daily papers and newspapers, especially in the Sunday paper. Anybody still get a Sunday paper? How many still get a Sunday paper, right? But it ran in uh, papers and Sunday papers from 1950 to 2000. Think about that just for a second. 1950 to 2000. 50 years. That's 17,897 strips in total. I think I only missed a couple of days in 50 years. And at its peak, Peanuts ran in 2,600 newspapers in 55 different countries in 21 languages with a daily readership of over 350 million people. Royalties and merchandise sales from Peanuts reportedly earned Mr. Schultz upwards of one billion dollars. I think his estate still makes like 50 million a year just from royalties. But of all Schultz's characters, Snoopy, Linus, uh, Lucy, Pigpen, Peppermint Patty, Woodstock, Schroeder, the most famous and most popular, of course, was Charlie Brown. We love Charlie Brown just because he's so ordinary. Just an ordinary young boy who loves his dog, who plays baseball, who struggles sometimes with his self-confidence. He's a loyal friend, but often his friends will, will mistreat him. He's simultaneously hopeful and pessimistic, and sometimes he has great wisdom and perspective. We can relate to Charlie Brown, especially in how he deals, I think, with failure and disappointment. When something doesn't go his way, sometimes he just says, good grief. It's one of his favorite things. When faced with confounding or confusing homework, sometimes he just sighs. And when things go wrong in the ball field, or when Lucy pulls the football away, he groans. I would say that, ah! I wonder how, you, how would you pronounce that? Can you give me, on the count of three, give me your best, ah! One, two, three, ah! Okay, a little more angst. One, two, three, Ah, right. And then sometimes when life is very frustrating or painful, he has no words at all. Now, this image to me is powerful. I love this image because it has no words and yet communicates so much. And I think most of us know what that feels like. We continue today and have one more week next week in our series from Romans chapter 8 called The Greatest Chapter. Just a really quick recap to bring you up to speed. Paul begins this chapter by saying, for those of us in Christ, there is no condemnation. And then he says, for those in Christ, we live according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We have a new power system or operating system. We are, he says, the adopted children of God with new identity, with a new inheritance or destiny, and then he goes on to say, and yet there is a great groaning in all of creation and even in us because the world is broken and fallen. And then he points to coming glory, the redemption of all things, the redemption even of our, of our bodies. And now today we're going to see Paul shifts his attention, uh, his thought to how then do we live now? How do we live? How do we endure in this time between the great groaning of all things, and the coming glory that's promised. We're in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 26. 
So you can look on the screens or in your personal Bible and follow along. The words of the Apostle Paul. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I have to tell you that uh, we meet every Thursday morning as preaching team, and Pastor Jeff leads that meeting. And um, over this series in Romans, as we've studied together and talked together about upcoming messages in the series and so forth, every week, Jeff starts out by saying, now, okay, this week, this is, this is the best part. This is the best part yet. This part in Romans 8, this is the best part. He's all excited. And the next week, he says the exact same thing. And then the next week, oh, this is the best part. And what's amazing is he's been right every time. Romans 8, and you're going to find out today, there's, there's just so much from the brilliant mind of the apostle led by the Holy Spirit. I see in this paragraph uh, three uh, huge, enormous encouragements that Paul gives us. The prayer of the Spirit, then work of God the Father, and then the image of the Son. Let's begin with the prayer of the Spirit. Uh, years ago, my younger brother Joe and I were uh, leading a six-week summer mission trip in South America in Bolivia. I've told many stories over the years about the, these trips we made. It was a basketball team traveling all around the country, um, playing games and bearing witness to the gospel as best we could. And one part of this one trip we were on was particularly grueling. We were in a part of the country called the Altiplano. If you know anything about South America or Bolivia in, in particular, this is a region uh, about eight to 10,000 feet above sea level. Uh, it's very arid and des desolate, pockmarked by these small little indigenous mining towns, um, very, very remote. And we were traveling by train uh, for this three-day stretch, playing a game each night in, in a village, and then getting back on the train, traveling all night to the next village, um, and playing again. Sometimes we'd get on the train without having a shower, and with no beds, we'd just sleep on the train. So it was a little bit of a tough travel segment there. But it's also, it was July, so, and that's winter in the southern hemisphere, so it was cold. And we're at about 8,000 feet elevation or higher. Very cold at night. And the last night we were um, traveling by train, it was so cold on the train that in the morning, the insides of the windows were coated with ice, and the floor of the train was covered with ice. It was that cold. So my brother and I sat in the same um, little seat on the train, and we unzipped the sleeping bag from our luggage and just put it over us like a cocoon. Uh, to, to try to stay warm. Now, we're two adult men uh, in this cocoon just trying to stay warm as we tried to sleep that night. And at some point during the night, I, I heard a, a pitiful sound. And at first I thought I was dreaming of a child uh, just softly groaning, uh, weeping in the night. It was a pitiful sound. Then as I started to wake up, I, I thought it was a child on the train, like a young child. <laughs> Uh, like that. And then I realized we had no children with us on the trip. 
And as I fully woke up, I realized it was my brother. And he, was, we, he was right next to me, like leaning up against me. And he was sleeping, but he was just going, uh-huh. he was so miserable, so uncomfortable. And that's something about what Paul's talking about here. One of the great privileges of the pastoral call uh, is to be invited into, bo- into both the most joyful and the most painful moments of people's lives. And I, I spend time uh, talking to our younger pastors about this. Uh, that is, among the most joyful are things like weddings. Uh, I had two weddings just this past weekend. The birth of a child is a joyful time, maybe baptism. And among the most painful times are funerals. I had one of those this weekend, too. Uh, maybe the loss of a job, maybe diagnosis of a terminal disease, maybe a tragic accident, loss of a loved one, and so forth. And over the years, I've had the sacred privilege of walking into all those kinds of moments. Among the most difficult, years ago, a 16-month-old little girl who was part of our church family drowned in the family swimming pool while everyone was at home. Delivering the news to parents at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning that their college-age daughter had lost her life in a traffic accident the night before. Going to the house of a woman who had just started attending our church, who had just discovered the body of her husband hanging in her basement. And there's many more I could share. And what I've learned through those moments is that sometimes there are just no words. Sometimes there are just no words to say, only groaning. So what do we say when we don't know what to say? How do we pray when we don't know how to pray? Verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, Paul has already told us that we are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, makes his home in us. Now he says three specific things about the Holy Spirit in times of suffering or pain. He says, first, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. And the word used, word for helper there is the Greek word paraclete, and you've probably heard that. It means one who comes alongside, one to come alongside to help, to comfort, and to guide. Now here in Romans, Paul says something very similar. He says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And the word translated helps here is a kind of a long, complex Greek word. It means to to take hold of at the side, to join together with. An image I have is of a parent, you know, a dad or a mom, helping a young child learn to ride a two-wheeler bike. Maybe you did this. Maybe you can picture in your mind. Uh, you set the child on the bike, and they're a little wobbly. They haven't done it too much. And so you, you kind of run along or walk alongside them as they're trying to ride. So you're there. They're riding, but you're there to guide in case they fall. Or if they fall, you keep it from being too painful. And you run alongside. That's sort of the image of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside to help. But what is the weakness Paul is talking about? He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. 
He's acknowledging there are times that leave us so shaken, so overwhelmed in grief or pain, so weak that we don't even know what or how to pray. And I think many of us probably felt something like that when we saw the news about the shooting in Texas. Second, Paul says the Holy Spirit, the helper, how he helps is to intercede for us. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, intercedes is another long compound word, meaning to make petition for, to speak on behalf of, kind of like um, an attorney might be an advocate for you before a judge. And how does the Spirit intercede, Paul says, with groanings too deep for words? Now, the word groanings here, uh, Paul has used before uh, as a verb when he says, all of creation groans, and we ourselves groan. Here it's a noun form. It means uh, to groan or sigh when one is under great pressure. We actually see this kind of prayer throughout Scripture. Psalm chapter 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Psalm 38. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. In Hebrews 5, we learn that Jesus himself prayed this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So Paul is saying in some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us translates our groans and our pain into eloquent prayers before the Father. And the third thing Paul says is the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now this is a kind of a mysterious phrase for those who try to explain this text. But I think what Paul is saying is that when we have no words, when we don't know how or what to pray, the Spirit translates, as I said, our groanings into prayers <coughs> that not only are lifted up to the Father, but also align with His presence, with His purpose, and His will. So that's the role of the Spirit who helps. And that leads us to the second thing we see, uh, the second encouragement, which is the work of God, the work of God the Father. Now, I love chocolate cake. Uh, I'm a chocolate guy. I like well, most things chocolate. Uh, chocolate chip cookies, chocolate ice cream, chocolate cake. And one of the best versions of chocolate cake around, in my opinion, is Portillo's chocolate cake. <laughs> Anybody had Portillo's chocolate cake? You know what I'm talking about? Right? Great cake. But several years ago, uh, I learned something terrible about Portillo's chocolate cake. Some of you know what I'm going to say. I learned that Portillo's chocolate cake is made with mayonnaise. I'm not a mayonnaise guy. I don't like the taste of mayonnaise. I don't even like the thought of mayonnaise. If a restaurant puts it on my sandwich or on my burger, I scrape it off because it, it just it makes me gag, the mayonnaise. I'm not a mayonnaise guy. But there's mayonnaise in Portillo's chocolate cake. How is that possible? <coughs> Somehow through the process of putting in all the ingredients and baking the cake, the mayonnaise actually helps it in some way 
become delicious. Now, I don't know how something as nasty as mayonnaise can make chocolate cake so great, but it, it does. In verse 28, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, probably one of the most well-loved and memorized verses in all the Bible. And it contains a promise that brings us great peace and hope. But I think it's also probably one of the most misused verses in the Bible. Because sometimes it's turned into, my guess is you've heard this, maybe said it, everything happens for a reason. You ever heard that? Everything happens for a reason. Or sometimes it's turned into, don't worry, God's in control. It's all going to come out okay. Now, these statements are true, but not in the way many people use them or hear them. Let me try to explain. First, let me ask a couple of hard questions. Is Paul saying that God orchestrates everything that happens in the world so that everything is good? going to ask you to think a little bit. For example, did God orchestrate what happened in Texas last week? Somebody I talked to this week saw a post on social media that said, if there is a God, he just killed 19 children. Is that what Paul's saying? Is everything that happened what God wanted to happen? Is God orchestrating Everything from childhood cancer to the war in Ukraine and on and on? Well, obviously not. Paul's already said that the whole creation groans, that death is in the world because of sin. That story happened way back in Genesis chapter 3. Or how about this? Does God orchestrate everything, good and bad, in our individual lives so that we'll all come out okay in the end? Well, not exactly. So then what is Paul saying? Let me read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now I'm going to go through this sort of line by line, word by word, because we need to see some things. He says, we know. We stop right there. The word for know is interesting here. It means to see with the eyes of our minds, to perceive something that is true. Kind of like we would say, I see what you mean by that. It points to a kind of spiritual certainty of knowledge. I think Paul is saying there are many things we don't know, many things we cannot understand from our human perspective, but this we do know. I read a a commentator this week who said, as believers, we are never to abandon what we know because of what we don't know. So what is it that we know? He says, we know that for those who love God, let me stop there, for those who love God, this is the first of two qualifiers in this promise. Paul is saying that this is a conditional promise, that it's not for everyone out there. So when someone out there says, everything happens for a reason, this promise is not for them, unless they love God and are in Christ. For those who love God and are in Christ, who are walking according to the Spirit, this promise is good. For those, Paul says, all things work together for good. Notice he does not say all things are good. They aren't. He does not say God will protect us or keep us from bad things, because he doesn't. 
Some teach this as a version of the prosperity gospel, what's called prosperity gospel, that only good things happen to those who pray enough. God will make you healthy and wealthy if you just pray enough. Not, not true. Even Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Paul says, all things, good and bad, work together for good. Now this word translated work together is one word in, in ancient Greek. It's synergei, which means, which is from which we get our word synergy. He's saying that God uses all the ingredients of our lives to create something that's good. All things work together for good. Now we have to ask a question. What is good? What does he mean by good? And we need to be careful here because what God means by good may not be the same thing as I mean by good or that you mean by good. My personal definition of good might be good health, plenty of money in the bank, lots of chocolate cake. But what is the good that God is working to bring about in us? Paul finishes the sentence, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the second qualifier of the promise. God is working in all things to bring about his purpose in us. Not what we think is good, what our culture says is good, but what he defines as good. So this is not a smug, everything happens for a reason. This is not a simple, everything will work out okay in the end. Paul is speaking here from an eternal perspective, not a here and now perspective. Again, there's much that we do not know. There's much that we do not fully understand. But we do know, he says, God is working for our ultimate good. For those who love God, for those who are in Christ, nothing can happen to you that God cannot ultimately use for your good. To say it another way, nothing can happen that can keep God from accomplishing his purpose in your life. But what is that ultimate good? What's that all about? And that leads us to the third promise, the third encouragement. And that is the image of the Son. The image of the Son. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in these two verses, Paul gives a kind of tour de force of New Testament theology. He uses five words, almost back to back to back to back, that describe God's ongoing work and purpose in our lives. And each one of these words um, sort of demands its own sermon. In fact, uh, throughout Christian history, whole libraries could be filled with the volumes written just about these five words alone. So, let's dig in. Those, for those who he foreknew. That word simply means to know beforehand. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched, and searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. So like this ancient psalm, Paul is saying that God knew us before we knew him. 
God loved us before we loved him. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now this word gets us tied up in theological knots sometimes. It means to mark out beforehand, to foreordain. It means to predetermine a destination. Sort of like when a family packs up and heads to the beach for vacation, right? The beach is the predetermined destination. The family is predestined to go to the beach because that's the preordained destination determined by mom and dad. They might get a flat tire on the way. They might make a wrong turn on the way, but that's the predetermined destination. Paul is saying God has in mind a destination for each one of us. In Ephesians 1, Paul says it this way. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He foreknew. To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now here is a great mystery. God knew, loved, and chose you before you knew and chose him. Everything is dependent on the sovereign action of God the Father. Everything. You do nothing to earn, deserve, or merit his favor and his choice. That's his. And yet, and yet at some point in your life, if you're a believer, you chose to accept his grace. So which is it? God's decision or your decision? Now, some of you are aware I'm introducing an old theological debate that swirls around this word predestined, this word predestined, namely the debate between Calvinism, named after Swiss pastor and theologian John Calvin, and Arminianism, named after Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius. Briefly, very briefly, Calvinism holds that our salvation is the result of God's sovereign will and activity alone. Arminianism holds that human beings participate in salvation by exercising our free will to accept God's grace. And the debate has raged for 400 years. And we haven't figured it out yet. And I don't think we're going to. Because both are correct, in my view. For example, I talk to lots of married couples, uh, couples getting married, and usually when I hear their story of falling in love, courtship, and all that, many of them eventually say something like, you know, Pastor Brian, we were just meant to be together. We were just meant to be together. Now, does that mean there was just one person in the whole world for them, for each other? That, and they just, that they were foreordained to meet that one person? Or does it mean that two people happened to meet each other at the right time in their lives, and then spent an invested time getting to know each other, eventually committing themselves to building a relationship, and eventually choosing to love the other. Which one is it? Well, it's kind of both. Right? It's kind of both. So we're wise, I think, to hold in tension God's sovereign will and our human free will without trying to overdefine it. Somehow, in God's wisdom and sovereignty, both are true at the same time. See, I think we need to remember here that Paul is not trying to start a theological fight here. He's not trying to introduce a theological controversy. Rather, this is kind of a pastoral letter. Paul is writing to encourage real people, real believers in Rome who are facing real suffering and groaning. And here's what he wants them to know. He wants them to know that God 
sees them, that God knows them, that God has always known them and loved them, and God has for them a glorious destination in mind. That's what he wants them to know. And that's what he wants us to know. And then he says, those he predestined, he also called. The word called means to invite, to call out by name. And this is intensely personal. Like Jesus called Peter and James and John and Matthew. Just as God knew and loved you before you were born, he called you by name. Those he called, he also justified, Paul writes. Now that means to declare as righteous. And we saw Paul already talk about this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he finishes this astonishing sentence by saying, those he justified, he also glorified. It means to make glorious. Now, this is interesting because we can see that the first four works have already happened. God foreknew, he predestined, he called, and he justified. All that's already happened. We can see that. Then he says, although glory, he's already told us, is yet to come, he says he has glorified in the past tense. So Paul is so certain that that is going to happen that he writes about it as if it's already happened. And notice, the phrase that holds all these theologically profound words together is right in the middle. He says, to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is the point. That's the point. God's ultimate and glorious purpose in everything is that we be conformed to the image of his Son. The interpretive principle of what Paul is teaching in all of Romans chapter 8, and we'll see it conclude next week, the interpretive principle is Jesus. Jesus is the center of God's plan and work in the world. Jesus is the center of God's preordained plan for you and for me. Paul says that by faith we are in Christ now. Paul says that by faith and through the help of the Holy Spirit, we are being made like Jesus now and ultimately when we are glorified with him. Here's what I think Paul is saying. He's saying, I know there's groaning in the world. I know that you are groaning and sometimes don't have the strength even to pray words. But I want you to know, dear friends, that nothing can happen that disrupts God's plan. Nothing changes what God wants to do, what God is doing, and what God will do in you. Nothing. If we go back to Charlie Brown for a minute, when Charlie Brown faces disappointment or pain, he lets out a sigh or a groan, or there's that thought bubble with no words. We, we can relate to that. We know what that is. Paul's saying that when we find ourselves with no words, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us turns our groans into prayer. And Paul's saying that even as we groan, God is working in and through all things to bring about his purpose for us. But here's what's different in us than in Charlie Brown. 
Charlie Brown's sighs and groans would usually come at the end of the strip. If there were four panels, it would be the fourth panel, the end of that little story. But Romans 8 is telling us that groaning is not the end of the story. Our groaning is not the last panel. That God is working even now in all things to bring about a new panel to the story, to the story of the world, to all of creation, and to your story. And Paul describes that last panel as being conformed to the image of his son. Uh, Lorena and I were able to make a trip a few years ago, and part of that trip we stopped in Florence, Italy. And there's a museum in Florence that's, a, that's an amazing museum. It contains lots of works of Michelangelo and other artists, including the David statues in there. But there are some really interesting statues, and if you've been there, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, there are statues that they're unfinished. They look unfinished. Now, evidently, Michelangelo made these on purpose, but they look like human beings emerging out of the stone, but they're unfinished. You see part of the body, but not the whole thing. I was going to put pictures up here for you today, but they're all naked, so it's not really <laughs> appropriate. And if you get really close, you can get up pretty close to these statues, you can see the chisel marks. You can still see the chisel marks that he actually used 500 or 600 years ago. But they're unfinished. And he made them as, as representative of slaves longing for freedom. But I found those statues moving because it made me think of God's redemptive work in the world and in us. How, in some ways, we are captive, in a sense, to the groanings and pain and death in the world. We long for the glorious freedom of the children of God, he says. Now, we've been made free already, but we've not yet been glorified. And God, as the great artist, through the Holy Spirit, is chipping away, chipping away, piece by piece by piece, and polishing and chipping and polishing and chipping to shape us into the image of of his son. And he uses all things to chip away, to shape, to mold, to accomplish his purpose in us, which is to conform us to the image of his son. Now you bow with me in prayer as we close. Lord God, we thank you today for your word. But it's profound and profoundly encouraging words from the apostle, from your spirit. Use them to encourage us today. Remind us that your purposes cannot and will not be frustrated or thwarted by anything or any circumstance. You know us, you love us, and have always known and loved us. May we respond by loving you and trusting you to do the work in us that you promised to do. It's in your name that we pray.